Hello, hello, hello. It's Jaquette here, your host for More Than Money, a podcast where we have nuanced conversations about money, business, and life, where we take the time to explore the intersections of the psychology and emotions of money, as well as the math of money. Because these elements, they impact your results, your feelings, and your experiences where money is concerned. So welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you are a listener that comes back often, thank you for that. And if this is your first time, thank you for that too. And I hope you will return. As you can probably tell, I am in high spirits. Ah, And that is because we can now officially say President Biden and Madam Vice President Harris. Oof, that just feels so good to say. I'm excited about this transition and what it represents, the fact that it represents a new, fresh start for so, 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 so many reasons. Um, Am I excited? And a new and fresh start on so, so many levels. I mean, I can really barely contain myself here. And no, my excitement does not make me oblivious to the amount of work that is ahead, nor the obstacles that we will definitely encounter in the years ahead. But I am hopeful. In fact, I am more than hopeful. And you know who else was hopeful? Who instilled hope? Who gave us an example of what hope and action looked like, especially in the midst of obstacles? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So how fabulous that the federal holiday observing his birthday was just two days before this momentous inauguration. I'm thinking about Dr. King wondering what our country would look like if we had fulfilled his dream of economic justice by now. I'm thinking about the Biden-Harris administration wondering what strides may possibly be made under their stewardship toward a more just country socially and economically. And especially regarding the latter, I wonder what strides will be made toward eradicating economic inequality and the bootstraps narrative that goes with, you know, the one that says people's financial well-being is exclusively tied to their effort without any consideration of the roles and impact of the structures and the systems within which they live. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, particularly when you consider how 2020 put a magnifying glass on what has existed in plain sight for years, multiple generations, in fact, but clearly has not been comprehensively addressed, not comprehensively addressed through our laws and our policies. Why? Because that would require more people asking uncomfortable questions, taking uncomfortable actions, and making uncomfortable changes. And it's not to say that people aren't doing those things, but clearly not enough for you know our laws and policies to change on a sweeping level. And I think that's because based on our collective history, I'm not really sure all that many people are really committed to the level of discomfort that that requires 
that that the that being the asking of the uncomfortable questions, the taking of the uncomfortable actions, the making or the doing of the uncomfortable changes, at least not when you pair that or match that up to the rhetoric that would, you know, frequently tell you otherwise. But I don't know. Maybe this represents a turning point. We shall soon see. (laughs) But in case you couldn't tell, what I have been leading up to for us to talk about today is this notion of economic growth, which by extension is really tapping into economic justice. Dr. King stood for economic justice just as much as he did for social justice. But as Professor Douglas Thompson reminds us, we allow ourselves to see King dying for civil rights. And we forget, that's my addition, that he was in Memphis for economic justice. Um, And so when you see all of the tributes on the day that we observe his birthday, and even for some people on the day of his birthday, there's always reference to the civil rights piece of his, um, of the movement that he led, but not as much emphasis on the economic piece. And it's interesting because when I went to a financial dictionary, one that is, you know, the, the pillar for the financial industry, there is no reference to economic justice, by the way, FYI, or at least not on the edition that I have. And it is pretty old, but still, there's no reference to it. Um, it's not as old as the 60s, so post that, there should have been. Anyway, if you go to Investopedia, though, It notes economic justice as the idea that the economy will be more successful if it is fairer. Now, I need you to hold that thought for a moment while I share some stats. In December 2020, the RAND, R-A-N-D, Corporation, released a working paper called Trends in Income from 1975 to 2018. And the report raises the question, what if incomes grew like GDP, i.e. gross domestic production? What if incomes grew like GDP grew? Well, you may find the answer their data uncovered as astounding as I did. From their report, income inequality has cost the bottom 90% of workers about $2.5 trillion. Take away the widening difference between income and GDP or income growth and economic growth, and what you end up with is this. A person working full-time earning $50,000 a year today would actually be earning approximately $92,000 today. In other words, the income inequality is costing this one worker about $42,000 a year. Now, compound that over several years for one person and then multiply that if you've got hundreds, thousands, and maybe even millions of people for whom that is applicable. Kind of astonishing, right? I mean, it is really, really mind-boggling. Because what this means is that not only do individuals and individual families lose out 
unable to experience a higher standard of living or take their current standard of living to the next level and maybe even the level beyond that. But it also has an impact on the economy because heck, the economy is stifled as well. (laughs) So there's actually nothing fair about this. And I suspect this isn't quite the economic justice that Dr. King had in mind either. In fact, his speeches inextricably link the relationship between income growth and economic growth together. And from his perspective, at least the way I understand the speeches that I've read, is that he wanted both of them to increase. But here's an uncomfortable truth. The inverse relationship between income growth and economic growth, it isn't accidental. It is a byproduct of our laws and of our policies. And this, however, brings me to something else. The RAND study covers a period starting in 1975. Interestingly, this is also when the self-help movement became more mainstream followed a decade later by the growth in personal finance. So this is when that even became much more mainstream and wasn't just reserved for high net worth individuals and families. Now, over the years, I have definitely purchased and read my share of self-help books. And as an aside, self-help books are an $800 million industry, at least last number that I got from market research, which was 2016. So that that number is probably even higher given, you know, that it's been several years. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that it was in the late 80s that you really began to see a shift from defined benefit plans to defined contribution plans and, and, and individual retirement accounts. And so what comes with that is a shift from a company or, yeah, mostly companies, being responsible for your retirement planning and that responsibility shifting to you as an individual. And all of that is what contributed to the huge growth of the mutual funds industry. So to put this into context, in the 1970s, there were less than 500 mutual funds. By 1985, there were about 900 equity and fixed income funds. Today, there are nearly 8,000, 7,945 to be exact. Also, this is going back again to the 80s, I saw how the Community Reinvestment Act led to the explosion of financial literacy. And you know, I really, really hate that term, financial literacy. And if you don't know that, you're hearing it now and you can go back and find another episode where I um, express my disdain (laughs) ever so passionately and I tell you why. Um, So you can go back and listen to one of those other episodes. Um, But there is a question embedded in all of the numbers and the stats that I've just shared with you. The fact that, you know, 40, 50,000, I should say, really ought to be 92,000. The fact that, you know, we've had an industry where, you know, 
mutual funds were less than a thousand uh, just what 30, 40 years ago, and now we're at almost 8,000. Um, and embedded in the in in the question that's embedded in all of that is one that's just been gnawing at me for a bit of time. <laughs> and if you'd really like to know how much, you could ask some of my friends. But it, it's it's a question that I've been noodling on from this standpoint. When you think about the rise of self help, which again started in about nineteen. 70 something um, in terms of that becoming much more mainstream. And you think about the shift from defined contribution to defined uh, contribution, which then led to more mutual funds, which that means there were more vehicles available to people to manage their money. So my point is with the rise of self-help, and the rise of you know doing personal finance on your own over the last 40 years, how is it that we have fewer rich and wealthy Americans? You've now just said, not you literally, but you know, you, the big picture you, you've now just said, focus on self-help as a way of self-improvement. Focus on improving your personal finances because that's what the personal finance, that's the foundation of the personal finance industry, right? You can do it, do it yourself, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, et cetera, et cetera. If you've given people all of these tools to indeed enrich their lives, both financially and otherwise, then why don't we have more rich and wealthy people? I've been asking that question, especially on the heels of 2020, a year that laid bare many things, including the reality that people and families who did all the right things, right? So they lived out all of the principles and most, if not all of the self-help books, they lived out doing all of the right things with their money, spending less than what they earned, saving, investing prudently, all that. And yet they still found themselves wanting financially. Just think of all the news coverage of middle-class families on food back lines in their cars. To me, this is further proof that one's financial well-being isn't exclusively tied to how hard they work. And not only does it prove just how false the bootstrap narrative is, it also blinds us to the structural and system, systemic, I should say, questions that we should be asking, but we aren't. Now, as usual, I have lots of questions. That's just me. That's, that's my personality. And, and at the moment, I don't have any solid answers for my questions. Keep peace there being at the moment. I'm working on it. But I do have a request, and that request is this. On a scale of zero to five, with five being often and zero representing not at all, how often do you think about economic growth? Is it a term that when you hear it, it just goes in one ear and out the other because it feels so disconnected from you? Or is it a term that you think about all the time? I'm really curious, or are you somewhere in between?
send me a direct message on Instagram. Just put my name in the Instagram search bar. You'll find me. Send me a DM, a voice DM as preferable, and just let me know. Zero, one, two, three, four, or five. And then if you'd like to add why you, you know, gave yourself that number, you can include that. I'd be curious to know. I'm asking that because I think we, if we really do want to make some changes from a systemic standpoint, from a structural standpoint, what that means is that we've got to get better at engaging in that, in that kind of a conversation on an individual level so that we can hold the people that we elect to offices that uh, participate in and make those sort of, you know, policy decisions and, you know, set the legislative agenda. If we don't do it for ourselves first, then how can we put, hold their feet to the fire? So just so that you know why I'm asking you to do this, it's not really just, you know, <laughs> a philosophical exercise. There's a reason for it. So let me know. Again, on a scale of zero to five, uh, five being often, zero being not at all, and then anything in between, let me know. How often do you think about economic growth? Well, that is it for today's episode. And as always, I thank you so much for tuning in and listening all the way until the end, whether this is your first episode or you are a returning listener. I really do appreciate it. And if you'd like to show appreciation for this podcast, this episode, then please share Share it, share it with your, share it with your friends, share it with your coworkers, um, share it with your family members. And this way we can reach more people. And if you'd like to buy me a coffee, well, here's how you can do that. Just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash jacket, buymeacoffee.com forward slash jacket. Again, tremendous thanks for tuning in to today's episode and may you have a great rest of your day. 